This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. This podcast is Shareable. I'm your host, Jeff Gibbard, commonly known as the world's most handsome strategist and professional speaker. I'm also a superhero. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single Shareable episode. And that's it. That's the intro. Short and sweet. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to Shareable, my lovely listeners, you good-looking people. Today, my guest is Aurora Winter. She is a best-selling author, most recently putting out a book called Turn Words Into Wealth. She's a TV producer, media coach, ghostwriter, and successful serial entrepreneur. Wait, there's more. Aurora uses her filmmaking expertise and neuroscience to help people communicate and get results, whether it's raising seven figures for a startup, negotiating for a raise, or enrolling a new client. So if you've ever wanted to write a book, which... I have just recently done. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. Uh, Become an in-demand speaker or communicate more effectively. You'll definitely want to stay tuned for this episode. And today we're going to talk about how to use words to build a movement. That is the agenda for today. Aurora, you are here with me and we're going to solve all the world's problems in the next half hour to 45 minutes. Well, I love it, Jeff. I love that you stand for a movement because like you, like you say, we cannot do it alone, but together, you know, we can change the world. We can make it better. We can make a difference. Yeah. And I am 100% behind that. So I'm glad to have you on to talk about that, to share some tips and tricks and tools for how to do that. Your background is going to be really, really useful in us doing this. So anything that I missed in introducing you, what did I leave out? Is there anything else people need to know to contextualize today's conversation? I think that's all they really need to know. Okay, good. (laughs) More coming soon. Great. So let's start here. Neuroscience. Immediately when I hear it, I think there are two different types of people that use that word. There's people who don't have any idea what neuroscience is and they use it because it sounds fancy. And then there's people who actually have looked into it and understand what it means to understand neuroscience, to implement and utilize things that you learn about it in your everyday life and to do the things you're trying to do. So let's start here. What do listeners need to understand about neuroscience? What is it? How do humans work? What do we need to know? Oh, this is so important. I'm obsessed with communication and neuroscience is a way for me to communicate with the, uh, the geeks and the engineers in Silicon Valley who are like, oh, okay, we need to understand this. So the neuroscience of how people communicate can be broken down into three steps. And you can use these th- three steps, whether you're on a podcast, you're on TV, you're, you're pitching, you're writing your book. But what most people don't understand is if you are the equivalent of a software engineer in Silicon Valley and you have the most brilliant idea on earth and you're super smart and you send the idea in the verbal equivalent of an Excel spreadsheet to another smart person, you assume that message sent is message received and you could not be more wrong. Just like as if you had gotten a file in an email that appears to be an Excel spreadsheet. If you don't know the person, you're not going to be opening that. Who knows what could happen to your computer? So our brains work the same way. The most expensive thing for us to use is our brain. It requires so many calories and so much fat to, to just process information. So there's a filtering mechanism Of course there is, just like Gmail, only it's in your brain. And you need to understand this so that you communicate in short sound bites. So the first step is to understand the croc brain. There's the midbrain, and then there's the cerebral cortex. 
most of us who've gone way too long to university just assume everybody is communicating with their cerebral cortex. Eh, wrong answer. So first you need to understand that the croc brain or the ancient reptilian brain, it's looking for something new, something sexy, something to mate with or something to eat or something juicy you need to tangle. That's that, that's that hook. That's that I've got something for you. That's let, let's start a, a movement, you know, that you said. Mm-hmm. So um, just to use neuroscience to explain this, I will make a little image and a story, which is imagine that you're a knight on your white horse and you've got a very important message for the king and queen. Can you just trot up and deliver it to the king and queen? No, they're not standing outside the castle. There's a moat and there's crocodiles in there. You have to get by the crocodiles. If the crocodiles go, okay, you know, this looks interesting. There's something there. Then the drawbridge come down. So then you can trot in on your horse. But are you talking to the king and queen? No. You have to deal with the midbrain, which is all about relationships and status. It's about who, who is this messenger from? Who sent him or her? You know, who else has listened to this message? You know, is this somebody cool who's on a cool podcast like Shareable with Jeff? They must be cool. All right, so then you pass the, the social test and only after you've passed those two tests, then the, uh, the nobles will lead you into the, into the room where you can speak to the king and queen. But just like Game of Thrones, it's dangerous. So you need to get permission to get uh, more and more communication, you know, minute at a time, five minutes at a time, 30 seconds at a time. So crock brain, midbrain, and then if you're lucky, if you haven't been destroyed in the first two steps, cerebral cortex. So I am a huge fan of this. I, um, I read a book called pitch anything back in 2014. I don't know. Love that book. Right. Yeah. Game changer for me. Read yeah. it back in 2014, read it, proceeded to read it four times, mm. uh, back to back to back to back to back. Cause I was so fascinated by this idea of the croc brain, the amygdala, how like basically it flips on its head, how people think information is received. They think, Oh, everybody looks at things in this rational intellectual way. And it's like, no, do I mate with it? Do I kill it? Do I run away? <laughs> so it's like, and, and, and people are like, Oh, well that's over the top. But you think like when people talk about the fear they have of public speaking or of like speaking up in a meeting or about even walking into an unfamiliar environment, you think that level of fear, that same fear is just a more socialized modern version of, oh my God, tiger chasing after me. It's fear and it's being processed through that same part of the brain. And it's so, it's so interesting to me once I was kind of once that door was opened up to me to think about how people are seeing the world through that, even though we think we're so evolved, we're still to a certain extent, these primitive creatures in the way that we absorb information, not to say we can't do higher level stuff, obviously, but it's just amazing to think that that's how so much information is processed. Yeah. I love that book by, I believe it's Oren Claff. Oren Claff. Yeah. It's a great book too, by Robert Cialdini. Yeah. yeah, Robert Cialdini. A big fan of that one as well. Big fan. Yeah. Um, so this is so important for us to understand because once we know that there's at least those three steps, then you can break it down and then it becomes shareable. Whereas otherwise it's just like so much noise. The other thing is I think we like to think that we make decisions rationally, but we're actually telling ourselves a lie. Most decisions are made emotionally and then very quickly justified rationally so quickly that we pretend to ourselves that no, we bought the Tesla for completely rational reasons. Oh, yeah, no, this, there was no emotion. That, that's actually such an interesting point just at, at the highest level there baked into that is that we assume so many of our decisions are rational when like 90 some odd percent of them or more are emotional that we rationalize. 
Exactly. Well, you know, what's really cool. Give you a little backstory. Uh, I took my MBA in 2014, 2015. And one of the uh, focuses was neuroscience. So we took a deep dive and had all the gear on our brains and, and, and stuff like that. But I used to sell boats as I used to sell boats. They're about like between a hundred thousand and $250,000. So it was one of my businesses in my past, one of my past lives. Um, and initially I, I told people all the features about the great boat and all the features of this tax shelter that we designed and all da, 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 da. But what I actually realized when I stopped being a university student, being so analytical with all my excitement about numbers and realized, no, actually people just want an excuse to buy what they really want. They want the boat, <laughs> the tax shelter or the charter business or the fill in the blank is just a rationalization that we use to ourselves to justify getting the boat, the Tesla, the house, whatever we want. And the other cool thing, what this is what I was gonna say, is that you can actually not make decisions rationally. And here's why. Go on, say more about that. Because yeah, that, is... that part I, I have not heard before that you can't. I, I would you, assume that it's minimal number of them. You actually cannot. And here's why. It has to be filtered through some kind of values. What are values? Values are our choices of how we feel or default settings of how we feel about different things. There's actually not a wrong or a right choice to get married or not to get married, to buy a house or to rent, to buy a, a boat or to buy a Tesla. There is actually no way to uh, mathematically come up with that answer because they've tried it with computers. But unless you filter it through values, you cannot make a decision. So our emotions, which sometimes trip us up and are, can be extremely bothersome things, <laughs> they're actually how we live our lives, right? We need to uh, first tune into what our values are. And what are values? Values are things that when they're offended or when they're not met, you feel like shit. <laughs> and when they're fulfilled, you feel great. So your feelings are uh, like a compass. And only through filtering through feelings can you make a logical choice? I know, isn't that amazing? No, I love it. And it, it, what's interesting about it is that actually just yesterday, I finished watching a video on YouTube by Veritasium. I don't know if you've ever followed that YouTube channel. It's a lot mm -hmm. of like science and mathematics. And it talks about a big problem in mathematics. And it, it goes really deep down this rabbit hole that quite honestly, like if we get too far down that, we won't get to the rest of our stuff, but I'm going to send it to you. And it really, it matches up because we tend to think of rationality and logic as these sort of perfect structures, but even math isn't a perfect structure and has issues where there is not a perfect solution to everything. Sometimes math falls apart. So it's yeah. fascinating. I'm gonna send it to you. I feel like you're really gonna love it. You probably geek out on this sort of stuff like that. I, I, I do but, geek out on this kind of stuff. Send it to me, I love it. I will. So, so. I want to go back to your spreadsheet example, because in my book, um, The Lovable Leader, due out January 2022, um, I it's talk about right. communication as being like the leader's most important tool. And yeah. I, I'm probably sure that you agree with me on that. Absolutely. And I, I posit that communication has really uh, three different functions. There's to inform, to influence, and to inspire. Those are the three eyes of communication that you can accomplish with. And I would say that the most um, important thing about communication 
is clarity. That essentially when you are sending a message, you want to, you want to do everything in your power to ensure that the intent that you send it with and the outcome that you're looking for it to have is what is received. So your example of the spreadsheet is, is very, very pertinent uh, because when I receive a spreadsheet, I'm like, I don't know what I'm looking at. Like it makes my head hurt. And that's why I think there's such power in story and why story is such a great connector between uh, two people, because it allows us to bake in things like values, like you're talking about. It allows us to bake in things like outcomes and objectives and movements and things that we want to accomplish. So I was hoping we could talk a little bit about story, because I know that that's something that you talk about. Actually, I have a number of things in our early correspondence that like triggered for me uh, some, some like, oh, we have to talk about this, for instance. Um, and this is what I want to lead into the part about story. In our correspondence, you wrote, words are the key to launching movements. And I am just so interested in that statement because I'm a big fan of words and communication. So let's talk about neuroscience and story and stories and movements and how all of these things fit together. So yeah. can you kind of give a primer on taking us out of neuroscience or, or continuing on that thread into the importance of story in leadership, movement building, and just generally living a better life. Absolutely. Well, stories are the DNA of humanity's wisdom. Stories are as important as the double helix of the DNA. We have gotten so in love with, with data that we think everything can be crunched as a number, but people don't remember numbers. Numbers don't stick in our heart. And as we mentioned, you cannot make a value decision. You cannot make the correct choice without filtering through some kind of value. And so stories stick in our hearts and people remember them. So they're the best way to launch a movement. And so, you know, you get really clear, you've just finished writing your book, The Lovable Leader, you know, inform, influence, inspire. So that's snappy, right? We can really remember those three points because of the alliteration, but I might not remember those three words tomorrow. But when you tell me a story about how, you know, you influence somebody or somebody influenced you, I will remember that story. And here's a quick way for everybody to really notice that this is correct. How many people listening to this right now can remember all 10 of the 10 commandments? There are only 10 versus how many stories can you remember from the Bible? Point made. Most people cannot even name half of the Ten Commandments, even though probably they were drilled in multiple times. But most people know many stories from the Bible, right? We remember the stories. And when you talk about movements, I'm going to hear your, you know, your movement. I want you to share a bit more about your movement, although maybe we could save that. But <laughs> it, you know, people connect with the reason of launching a movement because of stories, right? Tell me about the movement that you would like to launch, that you are launching. Yeah. So I want to talk about that, but I, I first want to come back with just one quick thing about that as a follow-up question. So stories are a pathway to building movements. Are we talking about telling people stories to believe in or telling people stories to live into? You see what I'm saying? So like on the one hand, so, so this, I'll answer your question now, and then maybe that'll they'll help to illustrate it. I could tell people a story about a world that is better because there are more superheroes in it. And yeah. I could explain to them what it means to be a superhero and what those values are. I can tell them about the process to go about acquiring new abilities and getting stronger so that you can protect people and 
uh, create more equity and justice in the world. I can tell stories about that, or I can invite them into being a part of that story where they become the protagonist in the idea that I'm trying to share with them. And ultimately I've tried in, in what I'm trying to do with the Superhero Institute, I'm trying to invite people in to see themselves as the sole protagonist in that story. Mm. That even though there's going to be hopefully many of these people joining this cause, this movement, this idea of learning how to unlock their own potential and then sharing that with other people as a coach, helping them to unlock their potential and doing it all with an ethical framework that tries to make the world a better place. It's that it's your responsibility, single human being that's coming in to be a part of this. And mm. I want to talk to you about what's important to you and align that with the values and the goals of what the, what the Superhero Institute is about. So we're a tool for you to tell the own, your own story about changing the world. See what I'm saying? So like, I, I think when we hear story, Whenever that comes up in storytelling, it's come up on this podcast a bunch. Uh, it comes up in marketing conversations, sales conversations. I think it gets a little bit um, buzzword bingo for some people. They're like, oh, storytelling. But when we talk about it from like a neuroscience lens and when we talk about it from movement building type of lens, mm -hmm. we really have to see that we can't do any of that without story. Like we, we yeah. cannot transmit data to one another in binary code of ones and zeros and in order to get people excited about doing a thing they have to be able to see themselves in it so when i think of story yeah. I'm, I'm typically thinking about how do i touch somebody else's identity how do i get into what makes them tick specifically not about what's, what's important to me but tying what's important to me about with what's important to them right and without a story there is usually no emotional charge mm-hmm and it's the emotional charge that makes it stick. But just, I love what you're saying, but just to tease that apart a little bit. Yeah, sometimes people go, oh, it's only a story. No, stories are the DNA of humanity's wisdom. Don't be dismissing humanity's wisdom quite so offhand. And there are multiple kinds of stories. There's a story to live into, which I would perhaps call a vision. Like you can paint mm -hmm. a vision of this world of superheroes. You can evoke what it would be like for each person to actively play a role being a superhero and and paint that picture so that people go oh that's me i i won in you know call me jeff <laughs> i'm in and you can also tell a story you can tell a story jeff for example of a time when you needed a superhero or somebody else needed a superhero and then perhaps you were the one to to show up that day you know, Tony Robbins shares stories about, you know, his, his childhood in foster care and not having enough to eat. And now he had, he goes out and gives away, uh, you know, a lot of uh, turkeys at Thanksgiving with a whole bunch of people. Right. But it's the story that makes that land. So in terms of launching movements, like one of the, the movements that I played a, a role in launching was to really change how people think and talk about and recover from grief. And I have my own story. My husband died suddenly beside me, in front of me. Um, our son was only four. And as you can probably imagine, I was devastated and heartbroken from that circumstance. So I struggled for many years, actually, to recover. And when I finally did recover, then people said, how on earth did you do that? How did you go from heartbreak to happiness? Because I want that. I want that smile that you've got on your face. And so then I had to reverse engineer it. And I discovered through research that on average, 
On average, people spend five to eight years suffering in grief from the loss of a loved one, the loss of a beloved career, a child, and that is just too, too long. So I launched a movement and a company to change that because I think that is ridiculous that, you know, that the amount of human suffering that must be, you know, um, 500,000 or a million dollars per person. And there's over 50 million people suffering in the United States from, from grief. So that would be like a quick example of combining my own personal story, because I think our own stories are what we have to share. I like that stories are a blend of humanity and expertise. So there was humanity in there. My husband died right mm -hmm. in front of me, son is four. Okay, I could see in your eyes an emotional reaction. But then there was data you know, five to eight years, how much suffering, you know, people are 50 million people. So there's expertise. And then there's kind of a call to action. Like this is wrong. Let's do something about this. Let's, you know, organize. So, um, and I trained coaches to do that at the grief coach Academy. And, you know, so that, that, um, I don't know if that is, 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 uh, <laughs> answering the question, but I want you to say something now. Yeah. Yeah. I, so what occurred to me is that the, the part of that that um, seems like the, the not so secret ingredient is the empathy, right? So that mm -hmm. empathy, the, the connection between the, the story and the movement is the empathy in that story, right? So yeah. hearing what you've been through, you immediately think, oh my God, put yourself in that position. Think about yeah. what that must be like. You try to imagine what that must have felt like and how to move on from that. And like, that is a deeply human experience to be able to map on somebody else's experience to yourself, or at least attempt to. And yeah. then that becomes sort of your ticket to be able to creating a connection around an experience that somebody else hasn't had. And it leads me into like the next part that I wanted to go to with this around story and around neuroscience and all the things we've been talking about here, building a movement, whatever. This is the thing I think about all of the time. And I am so curious to hear how you would respond to this. But as I have learned more about how the brain receives information, as I've learned more about how to be a more effective communicator, as I've learned more about you know, the, the structure of story and how to use it in pitches and in conversation and in emails and everything, I found that I, you know, wind up having a lot more success in what I'm doing. And what occurs to me time and time again, it crops up and goes away, is at what point does this become manipulation? At what point does utilizing empathy, for instance, and causing somebody to empathize with your situation veer off into you know, that fine line between influence, persuasion, and manipulation. Like, where does that line exist? Because sometimes I think to myself, I like literally will walk into a room, like a meeting or something, right? And I know exactly how to own that room. Not mm. every room, but there are a lot of rooms that I can walk into and I'm like, I am going to dominate this room. I'm going to own this <laughs> room. I'm going to be, I'm going to be everyone's favorite person. I'm like, and I think like that. And I think, Jesus Christ, Jeff, are you a sociopath? Like <laughs> I look at it, like I'm looking at the matrix, like I can see the code, yeah. right? And I know exactly how to connect with another person. I wonder at what point does the, the ethics of knowing how other people work begin to kind of get a little shaky. 
right? So I'm curious because you are, well, you're, you're deeper in this than I am. And I'm curious how you stop yourself from being like, ha I have the code. <laughs> okay. Well, for most people, present company accepted. I think worrying about manipulation is just an excuse for not mastering the skills. Okay. I really, I'm like, I call, I call it, it on that because people are worried about that and they, and they use that as a, as a reason not to do it. I like, I love this definition. I'm sorry, I forget who it was from. Marketing is empathy at scale. You mentioned empathy a moment ago mm -hmm. and stories build empathy. So really, you know, not for Jeff, maybe because you have leaned into this a lot, but most people cannot dominate a room no matter how much they know about it. It's just people are far too difficult and complicated. But the short answer about manipulation is intention. So what is your intention and what is the situation? If, if somebody is drowning and you are a lifeguard and you are on the, the shore and you've got the equipment and the expertise to save that person from drowning, it is your responsibility to do everything you possibly can to get them out of that water and get them out of drowning whatever you can do. So, you know, it's not, I think intention matters so much here. I'm going to get emotional, but because when we are focused on, I'm so cool, I'm going to own this room. I'm going to da, 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 da. That's the wrong focus. But if you're focused on what does that person need? Can I help them? Are they drowning? You know, then use all your superpowers <laughs> to help them. And, and the sky's the limit. The sky's the limit. Like there's a humongous planet with billions of people who need our help from those light bearers who, who care. And I think the more of us that, that just put down this whole icky feeling about marketing or um, other things and do everything in our power, and then we'll say, oh, I guess we're not superheroes yet. <laughs> but, you know, I, I could just add a PS to that because I, my intention is to be completely authentic. One of the reasons why I have shifted to helping people with their businesses and their books is because I got tired of talking about grief. And I did have moments on television where my mouth was running and I wasn't present. And I'm like, oh, that's not good. That's not good. You're telling that story automatically. That's not good. We can't have that. That's no good. And so when I was beyond what, you know, when I completely healed from grief and it wasn't alive in me anymore, then I didn't think I was the right, uh, the right leader for that movement anymore. But the movement still needs leading. So go <laughs> change how you think about and heal from grief. Yeah. I like that. It, it's, it's a little bit of, um, the permission that I think is required for people that want to go out and do big things. And, mm -hmm. and, and obviously we, we can't say that all big initiatives and big things you want to do and everybody thinks they're making a positive impact. Obviously not everybody is, is doing that, you know, like I, I'm a big superhero fan. So like I always um, get wrapped up in like the difference between like the, uh, the deontological ethics and the teleological ethics of um, Spider-Man versus Iron Man. So is it the intention or is it the outcome? And I can get totally wrapped up in that whole conversation. So, um, you know, for me, the, um, I think having, giving ourselves enough slack to say, like, we're out there trying to make a difference in the world. It's okay to try and influence and persuade people to come along with you, even if it's using story and using empathy and using all the different tools at your disposal. If you're out there trying to do the right thing, like just go out there and try and do the right thing. And that's the best we can all do as humans, I guess. 
it's not only okay, it's necessary. And it's boring if you don't. <laughs> Fair. Right? Okay. So stop boring people by setting them Excel spreadsheets and instead entrance them with, with your stories. You know, and don't, if you're making up stories and you're lying, then I think you've crossed a line. <laughs> That's But fair. if you're telling okay. a clear line, here, let me tell a completely different story to give you another example. So like many would be creatives. When I got to university and I told my father, hey, I'm going to uh, major in English. He said, as many fathers would, don't be ridiculous, do something sensible. <laughs> so I studied economics instead. And, um, you know, and I put aside my dreams of becoming a writer, even though I'd wanted to be a writer all my life since I was nine years old. And I read C.S. Lewis's, uh, you know, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe books. But I did something sensible instead. But then decades later, you know, I still really wanted to be a writer. And I found a way to combine, you know, being an entrepreneur and being an author. And I've written a half dozen books now. And so I am really interested in starting the movement of giving permission to people to write their books, to care about their journals, to honor their own stories, to share their own stories. What else you got, right? And we're all gonna die. You don't even know it could be tomorrow. It could be a decade from now. But you know, my mother died quite recently. And when she passed, I was grateful for two things. I was there when she took her last breath which was right because she was there when I took my very first breath. And I was also grateful that I'd interviewed her uh, several times, uh, a number of months while she was still uh, energetic before she died. And so I've captured, you know, those stories from her growing up in the, in the 1930s on a, on a homestead in Alberta without, you know, electricity or Wi-Fi or iPhones or even any kind of a phone and no fridge. They had to cool the milk in the running, you know, stream nearby before the milk guy would pick Goodness. it up. Yeah, and selling that, that uh, milk and cream was their only way to have cash during the Great Depression because you could sell these things and that cash you know, bought them this flour and the sugar and the other things that they couldn't grow on the farm. I mean, all the details of the stories I have because I interviewed her and it's on audio and I shared it with my family and now I can turn it into a book if I'd like. So there's a few stories and you learn more about who I am and, and why I care so much about helping others capture their own stories. I am so into that part of what you just said about stories being such a great way of helping people understand it, it like contextualizes, right? Like yeah. I've told a story a number of times uh, on the podcast and, and in various different forms where um, on my last day of high school, my mother was in a catastrophic car accident and uh, was in the operating room for eight hours, uh, got like nine pints of blood, traumatic brain injury was never the same after that. And even mm -hmm. if I tell you nothing else at all, just that fact, you know, she survived. If I tell you nothing else, you now know something about me that contextualizes certain parts of my values or behaviors. And I love that part of getting to know people. So like when I walk in, yeah. when I'm, I'm a big fan of like getting to know people one-on-one, -on -one, which is why I love these podcasts. Like I get to meet people and talk to them and like learn about their stories. And I just love hearing about people's past and the, the things that have happened to them and how it shaped who they are and yeah. why it shaped their certain values. Um, so I'm a hundred percent with that. And, and, you know, as far as everybody writing their book, I, I am, I am with you in, in theory of like everybody telling their story, but having just written the book and, and loving writing myself, I would be shocked if the majority of people could go through that birthing process. You've written six, which is 
absolutely shocking to me. Uh, <laughs> I've got I've got four more planned, but I'm like, oh geez, when am I going to get to those? Well, I have a hack for that. I have an easier and simpler. Well, way. yeah. Let, let's like we only have a, a few minutes left to to chat. Let's 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 go into some like real practical tips just to to wrap things up. Let's talk about some communication tips, some uh, some hacks to like you know, write more effectively, because obviously you write a lot, or, you know, even if there's anything you can give us about, um, I don't know, like, so for instance, I, I, like I mentioned, I walk into a room and I feel like I can own that room. You know, what are some things that neuroscience might tell us or some, um, some tips, tricks that you might have to be more confident in rooms, be more effective in rooms, you know, take over meetings, whatever might be useful to somebody. So like free form, give us free your best form. stuff. All Go for it, Aurora. Give us the best stuff you got. All right. Well, gosh, I got a lot of stuff. That's why I wrote the whole book and turn words into wealth. But um, neuroscience, you probably know this. Amy Cuddy's got the great TED, uh, TED mm-hmm. talk, power stances, you know, the Superman pose. That's really helpful. It's amazing how just a couple of minutes will change your whole energy or the Wim Hof breathing are really great, really great hacks for immediately getting energy. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of Yeah. In terms of something everybody could do today is I encourage everybody to start writing a journal and it could be as little as a page a day or like a sentence, a couple, five minutes, five minutes. (laughs) You can just, you know, write about what happened yesterday and how annoyed you are at the neighbor, whatever. Um, Read every day. And again, one page, it could be as little as that, but develop the habit of reading every day. And then the third habit that I urge you is what I call radical review. So I'm calling it radical reading, radical writing, and radical review. So you just, you're jotting in your, in your diary. It's only for you. It's not for publication. You're not writing a book. You're just writing. But then once a week, maybe on Sunday, just scan it and, you know, see scan it again every week. If, you know, six months from now, you're still moaning about the neighbor mowing his lawn at 8 a.m. on Sunday, maybe you should go over and talk to him and ask him to do it at 9 a.m., right? Maybe you should offer to mow his lawn for him if it's waking you up, like do something about it. So what I noticed when I read my diary, I noticed all the prayers that had been answered. And I wasn't properly grateful because six months later, I'd kind of forgotten that I'd prayed for something six months earlier. But when you actually review your life, you'll see all the miracles that are unfolding or you'll see all the trouble areas that you could take action on. And you don't need a, to write a book to read the most useful book for you, which is your own journal. I so agree with that. I've been journaling since like uh, early high school, uh, not every day, but like I, I find that it is like my favorite place to go to like clear out my head and get get really like um, putting it, putting out in front of me, like what's going on in my head and being able to look at it and then just kind of making the choice of where I want to go with that. Um, I've also recently started keeping like a really short form gratitude journal. Uh, I don't, again, I don't do it every day, but I find I more often than not, I'm, I'm like, I want to put an entry in there, but I'm like, well, I'm just grateful. I have an awesome wife and an awesome daughter. And like, there's probably about 30 entries that say basically that. Uh, yeah. yeah. I'm a huge fan of that. I also, um, my, my call to action of a similar point would be find a cadence that works for you and stay consistent. So like one of the, uh, I think I don't want to call it a mistake, but like one of the things I've learned is that when I tried to write every day, like write, write every day, like write a blog post or something every day, it wasn't a sustainable pace for me, but I've kept a two blog posts per week sustainable habit because it allows me to get everything out in a reasonable amount of time. I have the time mm-hmm. set aside. So I, I'm very much in agreement about like having 
uh, a writing habit and I read every single day. So I'm hundred yeah. percent behind that as well. And uh, Stephen Kotler is my go-to expert for the neuroscience of flow. He's got a, a bunch of great books and there's like 21, I think, or so things you can do to enhance, enhance flow. 90 minute blocks of time is one cadence is another. Yep. Yeah, so you, can, you can check out any of Stephen Kotler's books. Ooh, can I tell you my, my tip for flow? Yeah. So um, I have attention deficit issues um, and uh, I tried all different things throughout my life to like deal with it. And one of the things that I found is that the other side of attention deficit is like this hyper focus, right? So yeah. if I can just get myself into it, like flow for me is like I can accomplish in six hours, like what would normally take like 30 or 40 hours because I'm just working at hyper speed. But the yeah. trick is like how to get into it. So what I discovered was somebody recommended to me doing the Pomodoro technique. So here's what I discovered. The Pomodoro technique, the 20 minute work, five minute break, 20 minute work, five minute break, 20, that whole thing. Uh-huh. What I tried when I tried doing that and I tried following it to the letter, it fell apart because I would get to the five minute break and everything's broken. So what I started doing is I start a Pomodoro. I work for 20 minutes. The alarm goes off. I shut it off. I shut, I put away the timer and I just keep going. So it's like <laughs> all, I, all I need is like the kick just to get the ball rolling. And once I'm yeah. 20 minutes into a thing, I'm like good to keep going for like the next 10 hours. Um, so that's my hack is like, it's, it's, not a, quite a Pomodoro. It's more like a palm. Uh, and I just kind of, <laughs> but you trick yourself into starting. It. I'm yeah. 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 Cool. Okay. So we have similar stuff. Anyway. Um, I got to check out this Wim Hof and the book you mentioned. I got to check that out. The science of flow. All right. Um, final, final uh, piece of advice. Are there any um, suggestions you have for people who want to be more effective at using stories in their life, in any area, whether it be emails or sales pitches or whatever, what would you recommend as some starting points to immediately start getting better at storytelling and using it more effectively? I think that the biggest thing I could say, the biggest gift would be to let people know that it's the highest leverage thing that you can do. So we know about the 80-20 rule. Well, if you take the top 20% of that top 20%, it's the 4%, 64% rule or the 4% of what you do will create the majority of the value. And if you're launching a movement like Jeff, communication is in that 4%. Okay, so, you, so it's really valuable to focus on it. Second thing is to, to know is that most people do themselves a disservice because they don't allow time to master and learn a new skill. They think, I know how to talk. I should be able to do a TEDx talk. I should be able to pitch. And they don't allow any time to learn. But I'd rather that people understand that pitching or storytelling is a lot more like the difference between ballroom dancing and walking that talking to pitching. So give yourself time. You know, when you watch ballroom dancers, that it's choreographed, that they've practiced for hours to make it look effortless. And it's the same with storytelling. Steve Jobs practiced for three weeks before the Apple launches. Why? Because it mattered. And so do yourself a service, lean into practicing it and then tell stories everywhere. Tell stories while you're in the lineup at Starbucks and see when the person glazes over or when they lean forward or when they tear up. Just practice, practice, practice and then take some training. You can read uh, books about it, like uh, uh, the book that we mentioned earlier, Pitch Anything. Pitch Anything, yep. You can read my book, Turn Words Into Wealth, uh, Stephen Kotler, uh, The Art of Impossible. Practice, 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 learn, 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 and do yourself in the world a favor, a favor by becoming all that you can be. And storytelling is part of that. 
Love it. Love it. We are like so simpatico. We're like um, uh, celestial siblings or something. You've been a phenomenal guest. Um, I want to give you a, a period in the show right here to talk all about yourself, shamelessly promote yourself. You have earned the right to just boast and tell people where they can connect with you, where they can buy anything that you sell, where just it's your time in the show. So just go nuts. Tell people all about it. Oh, thanks, Jeff. Well, if people want to connect with me, LinkedIn is actually the best. Okay. Uh, so LinkedIn slash in Aurora Winter, A-U-R-O-R-A-W-I-N-T-E-R. My website is Aurora Winter. My most recent book, Turn Words Into Wealth, is available on Amazon, Apple, Kobo, and wherever books are sold. So grab yourself a copy. And what I specialize in is I specialize in helping those people who are up to something. They're launching a movement, they're launching a business, and they are ready to get you know, VIP executive help with their stories. And then what I do is I interview them. I call it the spoken author method. It's how to become an author without that painful process that you just went through. So I, I interview people and, and structure the book for them and they actually have fun. And then they leave all the hard work to me and my team. So this, that's something that, um, that I really love to do. I've helped people um, pitch. A lot of people have come to me with uh, a good idea and no capital. And after they've taken my training, you know, they've raised uh, seven figures of capital and they've gone from 12 people on their team to 400 people on their team. So that's the difference that a story can make. And some people have written books with me producing them and maybe ghostwriting them, but I can't tell you who. <laughs> and their businesses have, you know, increased by a factor of $4 million or so. So that's awesome. a good ROI. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. That's so interesting. And uh, honestly, if, if I wasn't such a control freak, I would 100% use a service like this, but I will say my editor and the substantive process we've been going through of like tweaking and, and, and honing it and all of that has been like incredibly invaluable. Um, so I fully support uh, services that that you're offering where people can kind of say, I have this big idea. I don't know how to talk about it. I'm not good at the story part or the structure or whatever. Just here's my big idea. Help me make it happen. Um, I, I just think that, you know, services like that are so incredibly valuable. And it's obvious that you know what you're doing for anybody who's been listening because this episode has been like freaking awesome, like just jam packed of awesomeness. So thank you for coming on the show. Uh, thank you listeners for tuning in. I hope you got a lot out of this. I no, sure as hell I did. Um, so if you did, make sure that you give us, you know, five-star rating on iTunes, share it with somebody, uh, tell someone about it. Uh, you know, I guess which would make the uh, episode shareable. Wait, don't leave. If you've never listened to my fancy outro, do it just once for me, please. Okay, if you enjoy shareable and you find it valuable, there's a few ways that you can support the show. One, you can share it on social media, which I strongly encourage. I mean, it's literally the name of the show, Shareable. Two, you can review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Overcast user, as many of my listeners are, make sure to click that star button on the episodes that you like. The third way that you can support the show is by blogging about it or discussing it on your own podcast or even by making a YouTube video where you talk about one of the episodes. And then the final way that you can support the show is by supporting it directly on Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. Now, before I let you go, I want to tell you about one other thing. 
You see, Shareable is just one of many projects that I'm working on at any given time. I've got another podcast called Rogue. I do a live streaming show every week called The Heroic Council. I've got a blog where I release a blog post twice a week. And if you're looking to keep up with all sorts of different content that can help you grow and become a superhero in life, I want you to check out jeffgibber.me. That's where I list all of my current projects and projects that are coming up in the future, including my forthcoming book, The Lovable Leader. It would mean a lot to me if you could go and check out some of the other things I've worked on because I put just as much of my heart into those projects as I do into Shareable. Thank you so much for being a listener. Thank you for being a supporter. And I hope to see you here on the next episode of Shareable.